we are glad to have you here. We are in a series on the book of John. We are in a sub-volume of that series called The Garden in Reverse, and we are going to be in John chapter 18 today. Um, we have all sorts of exciting things for you, and we're going to jump in right now to the Word. So um, we stand just to honor the reading of the Word if you are able to. Um, if not, uh, we know you're honoring it in your heart. So this is John chapter 18, starting at verse 37. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have disclosed yourself to us, that you in your grace have revealed who you are and what you're doing in this world and your victory over brokenness and darkness through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we are thankful. We need to hear from heaven. We need to hear your word, not just the mere words of men. And Father, we live and we move and we have our, our being in you. We abide in you. We delight in you. In your presence is the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore, and you make known to us the path of life. And that path, that way, that truth, that life is Jesus himself. And so today, Father, would you grant us the grace um, to see our, our Lord and our King? Would you sharpen our minds? Would you soften our hearts that in humility we would sit at the feet of Christ as we listen to your word by the power of your spirit? And would you help me to be a help to my brothers and sisters today? We love you. We need you. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, sometimes we mix things up. Sometimes we mix things up. We put this thing in place of that thing. We make a substitution. We grab the salt, thinking it's sugar, and we have an odd cup of coffee that morning. And we grab the sugar and we put it in the salt shaker and we make dinner more like dessert, right? We put one thing in place of another, and that's what it means to substitute, right? That's a simple definition of substitution, to put one in place of another. Uh, shortly after our daughter Olivia was born, uh, just a regular Sunday, I was going through my normal Sunday routine, getting ready to preach. So I was up here, you guys were all talking, I was trying to get your attention as I, as I often do, um, and I had my, my throat coat tea here. 
Um, and so I took a drink of my throat coat tea, at least what I thought was my throat coat tea. Nope, not my tea. Turns out that the packaging for the throat coat tea is almost the same exact packaging for lactation tea. <laughs> so that was great. Didn't finish that cup because I didn't know what the ramifications would be. <laughs> Sometimes we make accidental substitutions. But there are times when we make intentional substitutions. We swap one thing out for another. We substitute margarine for butter. Bad things for good things. Good things for bad things. Toxic things for nutritious things. Bad habits for good habits. We swap out false news for the truth. We swap out social media scrolling for real present engagement with the people that are actually in the room with us. We substitute this person for that person. This addiction for another addiction. We substitute a moment of pleasure for lasting joy. We substitute God's design for our lesser redesign of the world. Now today our text calls us to reflect on the ways in which we make substitutions. So let's get into it. At this point in the narrative, the religious leaders of Jerusalem are hell-bent on killing Jesus. Jesus is a problem. He is a threat to their power. He is a threat to their way of life. He is a spark that could light the powder keg of the uneasy relationships between Jerusalem and Rome. See, they have mixed up their Savior with their destroyer, and so they want him dead. Now, Jesus has already been unjustly tried by the Jewish authorities, and now he will stand to be tried by Roman power. He is taken to Pilate. Pilate is the the governor, the prefect of Judea. He is known as a stubborn and authoritarian figure whose my way or the highway policy has shed so much blood in Jerusalem because he provoked the people. All sorts of riots ensued from his style of leadership. And he was the substitute, so to speak. He was the representative of Caesar there in Jerusalem. Now, in order to understand what's happening in our text, we have to get our context. It's always key, right? Get our context when we're understanding Scripture. So what we're going to do is we're going to back up now to verse 28. So John chapter 18, verse 28. Here's what it says. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. And Pilate said to them, take him yourselves, judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Now this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So what's going on? Well, the religious leaders, they bring Jesus to Pilate, but they won't go into his headquarters. Now is Pilate a Jew or a Gentile? He's a Gentile. They're not gonna go into his headquarters because that would make them ceremonially 
unclean. They needed to stay separate from the dwelling places of Gentiles. They are trying to follow their purity laws intensely so they can celebrate the Passover, one of their main holidays, right? But they have made a substitution. They have substituted religion for righteousness. They have substituted self-concern in the place of other-centered love. They have put their trust in their own schemes and powers in place of trust in God. Here they are trying to kill an innocent man, but are concerned about celebrating the Passover and detailed observance through the law. It's a little bit like trying to hurry up and finish that murder and then clean your fingernails so you can get to church on time. Like it's just, it's bizarre. It makes no sense. So Pilate asks them what the issue is. He's asking for a formal charge. What do you charge this man with? And they don't answer straight. Did you notice they don't answer straight? They basically say, well, we wouldn't bring him to you if we didn't have a reason. We have our reason, so just give us the thumbs up on a crucifixion. And then Pilate says, go deal with it yourselves. And they say, we can't because we know what we want. We want him dead and we can't crucify him without you. It would be unlawful. Again, they're making an appeal to the law while they're doing something that is unlawful. This is like virtue signaling writ large. Now, all this would be to fulfill what Jesus prophesied. Remember, he said he would be lifted up, which means he would be placed on a cross. He would be put on a Roman cross. He would die on a tree as a cursed one, as according to the Old Testament law, that those who hang on a tree are cursed. So Pilate sees he has a situation on his hands. He knows this mob of leaders wants something, and they're not going to be happy if, if they don't get it. So he goes in, and he talks to this strange man named Jesus. Look at verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again, and he called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? So Pilate asked Jesus if he is a king. In other words, Jesus, are you a rival to Caesar? Are you competition? Are you aiming for this throne? And then Jesus does a very Jesus thing, right? He answers a question with a question seemingly putting Pilate on trial. And he says, in effect, what do you think, Pilate? Do you think I'm a king? And Pilate, what does he do? Well, he snarks back, right? Am I a Jew? Do I look Jewish to you? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What in the world have you done? What have you done? This isn't about me, Jesus. This is about you and your messed up crew of people. What did you do that was so bad that they are crying out for your blood? Now, Jesus' answer is, is fascinating. Look what he says there. Verse 36. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. The word there is ek in Greek. Is at, it's out of the midst of this world. It is not out of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world, not from this world system, it's from outside. 
So what is Jesus doing now? Well, Jesus is making a substitution. He is setting one thing in place of another. He is setting the way of the kingdom of heaven in the, way, in the place of the way of this broken world. He's calling out the mixed upness of our understandings of how kingdoms work. He's saying that the kingdom of God is not a kingdom of coercion, but it's a kingdom of affection. The kingdom of God is not a kingdom of oppression. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of love. It is a kingdom of compassion. It's not the kingdom of swinging swords. It's a kingdom of self-sacrifice. It's the kingdom of cross-carrying. In effect, the way of the kingdom of heaven. The way of the kingdom of heaven is the way of loving others through the self-giving and compassionate use of power that God has given you. This is actually a way of explaining one of our key practices of apprenticeship. So let me say this again. The way of the kingdom of heaven is the way of loving others through the self-giving and compassionate use of power God has given you. I think we have a slide for that one. Oh, what's up? Okay, my slides are different. There we go. The way of Jesus is compassionate gentleness. In other words, the way of Jesus is compassionate gentleness. And really when you get down to it, what is this, what is this talking about? What is gentleness? It's not just being soft. It's not just being nice. It's the appropriate use of power in order to bless others. It's the appropriate use of power in order to bless others. The way of Jesus is the way of compassionate gentleness, entering into suffering, holding back power, restraining power, using power appropriately, not to dominate, not to abuse, not to coerce, but to care for, to love other people. Now, Pilate you could say, functions as a stand-in. He functions as a substitute here, a representative for all humanity who believe that the kingdom or kingship is a matter of wielding power in a certain way, a way of grabbing and grasping, taking, pushing, pulling, and not trusting in God, but in man's own schemes. So he is a stand-in here. And Jesus is substituting that toxic way of seeing the world with the good way. The true kingdom is the way of heaven. It's the way of mutual love. It's the way of delight. It's the way of sacrificing. It's the way of giving oneself for another. So notice this. Notice Jesus didn't just say, yes, I am a king. Why? Because he knows Pilate has mixed up categories. He knows there's going to be some categorical errors because if he says, yes, I'm a king, then Pilate is going to think, well, I know what that means because I understand what kingdoms are, but his understandings of kingdoms are backwards and upside down. So Pilate misses the point. Look at verse 37. Then Pilate said to him, aha, so you are a king. Then Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. (laughs) For a moment, it seems that Pilate has a confession of some sort that is prosecutable. That Jesus is in trouble now. But Jesus presses in on swapping a good kingdom out for a bad one. He goes on, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. Real quick side note, note that this shows divinity and humanity all in a subtle way. For this reason I was born. Jesus came into the world born of a woman. He's a human being. 
But then he says, not only that I was born, but he says, I came into this world. This is him as the son of God entering into the creation that he created. Like, it's just simple, brilliant. He's fully man, fully divine. He did this to bear witness to the truth. And then he says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And then Pilate said to him, what is truth? Now, Jesus has come to do a many-faceted great exchange, so to speak. He has come to put truth in place of the lie. He has come to replace the destructive kingdoms of this world with the kingdom of flourishing and everlasting life. He has come to put justice and mercy in place of injustice and cruelty. And then we get these famous words of Pilate. What is truth? Oh, don't you wish you could hear the tone? Like, how do, you, how do you read that? How do you hear that in your head? What is truth? What is truth? Right? Like, is it sarcastic? Is this a sardonic tone? Is it dismissive? Is it flippant? Is it aching? Is it honest? Is it achingly honest? Is it despairing? Is, is there some grasping for hope? What is it? I personally smell biting cynicism in the words. A cold utilitarianism to justify his ways and to medicate his conscience for the things he's done. Because the conscience barks at you. But maybe that speaks more about me than it does him. But it seems the text leans this way, so. The question of Pilate, though, doesn't it sound thoroughly modern? Doesn't it sound like something you'd hear in a university class now or on the news or in some feed? The question of truth. Truth, what is truth? There is no truth. Live your truth. There's no transcendent capital T truth out there. Truth is what is convenient. It is what is useful. It is what we want. Truth is plastic. Truth is malleable. Truth is whatever the sovereign self says it is because authority has been located in the self, not some external source. And anytime you try to put authority on someone out there that's not in here, well, that's just sheer tyranny. It's always authoritarianism. It can never just be sheer authority. So that's always bad. So we need to deconstruct any authority that's outside of the self because true authority lies in the self. Right? Any claim of transcendent truth is just tyranny, a tool of oppression used by the power holders to keep the power and subjugate the weak. What is truth? There's no truth. Pilate embodies so much of the modern world. If there's no truth, there is only power. This is a very uh, Nietzschean way of thinking. Friedrich Nietzsche, the philosopher, his broken way of thinking. Um, And to put Nietzsche and Voldemort in the same sentence, because that sounds fun. This is the way of Voldemort, who says there is no good and evil. There is only power and those too weak to seek it. Like Pilate, we often substitute such a relativism for the realism of transcendent truth. We substitute our truth for God's truth, and things fall apart, as they say. Regardless of his tone, Pilate is blind to the truth that he is staring into. Maybe the question should be who is truth, not what is truth, because the who of truth is standing there in the flesh and blood. Jesus is the truth truth. He is God in the flesh. He is the truth of reality composed of of flesh and bones, beard and olive-complected skin, bruising and swelling and a bloody nose. 
truth in the flesh, bleeding in front of him. See, Jesus is the truth of the personal and loving God in the skin of a loving person. Love is an abstract. It doesn't stay far and distant. It enters into, it takes on flesh. So what will Pilate do? What will Pilate do? What will the kingdom of the systems of this world do with the king of heaven? Look at verse 38. After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Not guilty. Not guilty. No reason to execute the strange, bizarre, unsettling man named Jesus. After all, Pilate's wife had had a dream, said, don't have anything to do with this guy. So Pilate is starting to try to wash his hands already. But this is so interesting. He says, not guilty, but then we get this bit. Okay. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Or this other guy? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. And then John makes his comment to make sure we understand the context and situation. Barabbas was a robber. Bad guy. This is a bad guy. So what's going on here? Well, it seems Pilate is playing the manipulative politician here. He knows it's not going to be received well if he lets this Jesus go, and his wife said, I have nothing to do with this Jesus. And so he puts the decision back on the people who are doing a full court press to lynch this rabbi. You guys have a tradition. I can let one person go on Passover. So do you want me to release this Jesus who is not that bad of a guy, or this notorious Barabbas. It seems Pilate thinks he's found this savvy way, right, to, to not look like the bad guy and to not make the call himself. In, in a sense, he's protecting himself and offering Jesus up to protect himself. Shall I release this quizzical Jesus or this infamous Barabbas? That is a question, and I think he thinks the answer is obvious. Well, don't release Barabbas. I mean, after all, he's twice guilty. Insurrection and murder, our, our passage says robber, but that, that word means brigand or violent man. And then all the other gospels talk about how he was part of an insurrection and he was a murderer. He was a killer. He was trying to overthrow Rome with the sword. So, so just absorb this for a moment. This is the shocking moment. Roman power, the power of the day, offers them Jesus. And they want Barabbas released. Barabbas in the place of Jesus. Jesus in the place of Barabbas. The man who is loved and healed for the man who has hated and killed. In other words... The third cross on Calvary should have been Barabbas's. Have you ever thought of that? It's Friday morning. There's three crosses that will soon be occupied. That third cross, that center cross, should have been Barabbas's. It awaited him. He was guilty. The gallows awaited him. But he was set free. And Jesus was nailed to the wood as his substitute. Jesus has become the substitute, dying in the place 
of the criminal. And what John wants us to see so badly is that this isn't just some mere prisoner swap, some king for some criminal, some criminal for a king, an innocent one for a guilty one, or a guilty one for an innocent one. He wants us to see there's something more um, wonderful, more cosmic about what is happening here. The substitution is happening in light of and in fulfillment to the big national annual and beloved celebration of substitution. What's the holiday called? Passover. So let's do this. Let's take a few moments to link up the Old Testament, the New Testament, to see how the interrelations work and bring the text alive. Okay? A lot of hyperlinks happening here. Um, Remember our passage starts with the leaders not wanting to go into Pilate's headquarters. Why? They, they don't want to be ceremonially unclean. They want to be able to party that night. Right. So what's the Passover? What's the Passover? Well, this comes from Exodus chapter 12. So just in short, centuries before it was Jesus or, or Jesus for Barabbas, God's people were in slavery for a long time, some 400 years in Egypt. And they cry out and God sends them a liberator, a, a redeemer, a prophet. Moses. So Moses goes to redeem the people, but Pharaoh in his hard-heartedness over and over and over again refuses God. And so there's punishment. There's judgment. And that judgment is ultimately going to take the form of death. Death that would come to the firstborn son of everyone across the land, which is a parallel and fitting punishment given that Pharaoh threw the firstborn children of the Israelites into the waters. Connection. It's not random. But there was a way through this. God had provided a way for death to pass over. Pesach, that Hebrew word for Passover means like to either limp or to leap over and to connect. Okay, to pass over. How was this going to happen? Well, a lamb was to be taken on the 10th of Nisan, which is the month, not a car. Take, take a lamb and let that lamb live in your house with you for four days. Why? So then you could inspect and look at that lamb and make sure there was no fault in that lamb and understand that that lamb was was perfect and innocent and pure and it was going to be hard to kill. And then on the night of the Passover, the 14th there, they were to take this lamb and they were to slaughter it and they were to paint the blood vertically and horizontally across the threshold of their house and they were to eat a meal to subsume, to consume that animal. And... Every home that trusted in God's, let's just say it, odd, weird way of salvation, they would have death pass over, and the firstborn would live. Okay, so this was a major holiday. It is a major holiday for the Jewish people. It was in their rhythms. It was in their DNA. But let's name this for what it is. It's the celebration of salvation through substitution. It's the celebration of salvation through substitution. A spotless lamb was put in place of a son. Death was coming. So the substitute took that death so the son would live. Okay, and we got that loaded. Now with that lens, let's go back to our passage. John 18, verse 38. After he had said this, Pilate, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Sabbath. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. You see in him. I find no guilt in him. 
Multiple times this is said about Jesus throughout this whole thing. Jesus is the inspected lamb. There's no flaw. There is no guilt. He came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, was analyzed and inspected for that entire week, and no one could hang anything on him. Passover, someone is released. Someone is spared from death. A substitution, the innocent man now stands in place of the guilty one. The innocent will die in the guilty's stead. This is incredible. This is the gospel written in history and festivals and times and rhythms and meals. And this, is, this it gets more amazing. The name Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas. That's an odd name, but it sounds a little familiar. Why do I know this name Barabbas? Bar Abba, Bar Bar Abba. Bar Abba, 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 Father. Abba, Father. Bar, Aramaic for son. The son of the Father. Barabbas literally means the son of the Father. So put this together. What we have here is a violent, rebellious insurrectionist, murderer, son of the Father, who was set free because the humble, faithful, self-giving, true son of the Father took his place and underwent his death. A son swapped for a son. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that through him we could become the righteousness of God, the substitution. See, this is not just about the insurrectionist in Pilate's sight. Friends, this is about the insurrectionist in the pew right now. You. And this is about the insurrectionist standing in this pulpit. Me. We have all thrown up our fist in the sky and said, my way. I will do this my way, and I will overthrow your kingdom, and I will step on people along the way. I will do this my way. Barabbas is a representative of all humanity. Jesus is the Son of God who stands in our place, who takes the cross that awaited us on the hill. Imagine it, waking up on Friday morning, knowing that you are about to die a death that has been brilliantly engineered to be the slowest, most painful, most shame-filled death that the wicked human mind could conceive, knowing that that awaits you. And then... That afternoon, you're hopping and skipping home. Charges dropped. Slate is clean, all because another person took your place and is hanging on the cross that should have been yours. Your cross was occupied. You couldn't be put on it. Over and over and over again, the scriptures testify to this reality. I mean, there's all these bizarre things. Don't have, don't have time for them. Day of Atonement, there was, there was two goats. One was slain and the other was, was set free. One for life, one for death. One, but the whole thing showed the carrying away of sins. There's this strange rite about the cleansing of the leper where two birds are taken. One of the birds is killed and then the other bird is left to live and it's dipped in the blood and it's, it flies away. Death in life, a substitute, one lives and soars on the wings because the other died in its stead and it has the life of the other one on it. Man, Abraham and Isaac. Abraham goes up that hill to do what God said in this bizarre thing of killing his son, but then God supplies a substitute. A ram, salvation through substitution. Eden, back to Eden. This whole series is called you know, the garden in reverse and we see the garden in reverse here. 
Adam and Eve sin, and, and the penalty was, was to be the judgment of, of death, but they end up living, and an animal is slaughtered, and they wear the skin of that animal. Why? Because of the, the, the broken substitution. They substituted themselves for God. They, they took God's prerogative and made the decision and judge what was right and wrong. So they set themselves in God's place, and Jesus comes. God comes and sets himself in our place and dies on our cross. The substitution. My friends, we're all Barabbases. So I have really bad news for you today. We are all Barabbases, guilty, needing release. I have really good news for you today. We can all be a Barabbas. A son of the Father. A daughter of the Father. A child of the Father. Who is granted life because Jesus took our place. Christians know this as the the great exchange. The grand substitution. And we are to live out of this. And I'm going to change things up here. Um, I got a few... um, so, on the fly, calculating, sorry. About 23, 24 years ago, um, I had a real rough day. <laughs> um, I, uh, I had surgery, simple thing, some wisdom teeth stuff, and uh, I went home that day. And uh, feeling just lousy, feeling like something was, was off, and so I, I laid down in my bed for what I thought would be a nap. Long story short, maybe a longer thing on another, another day. Um, but when I woke up, my, my room was full of people, and paramedics. And when I came to, I came too quickly, so the person that was over my chest jumped back. So what ended up happening was, turns out, um, I was deathly allergic to the anesthesia. And I went into the room, went to take a nap, my mom closed the door, and my heart stopped. And later she came in and she found me with no pulse. She called 911. Um, she called my dad, who called 911. Um, and the whole thing just evolved. And then suddenly there was somebody who was being my heart for me. Suddenly there was somebody who was being my lungs for me, doing what I couldn't do. They were my substitute body. They were helping me breathe and kick-starting my heart. And, dude, I'll mess with you. To know that your heart had been stopped, it'll change the way you think. But how much more, how much more would it radicalize and revolutionize your life if, if you took deep into your being that your creator God on the cross that you deserved, that he, he gave you his life for his death. That he has brought you to life by undergoing the death that you deserved. To live in light of that. How much more glorious is that than gaining a few more years of your life? Because my heart will stop again someday. But because of Christ, I will live eternally. Because he died in my place. Friends, Jesus substitutes his perfection for our failures. He substitutes his honor for our shame. He substitutes his innocence for our guilt. 
His righteousness for our wickedness, his intimacy for our alienation, his victory for our defeat, his love for our selfishness, his freedom for our addictions, and his life for our death. And Jesus substitutes our idolatry of power with his kingdom of love and grace. The way of the kingdom of heaven is the way of loving others through the self-giving and compassionate use of power that God has given you. Live in light of this great substitution. Remember that the way of Jesus is compassionate and gentleness. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your grace. (laughs) One, that I'm standing here. Um, Two, for the eternal life that you have granted me and my my friends and my brothers and sisters who who didn't have to walk up that hill because you walked up that hill for us. This substitutionary atonement, God, would it be more than a doctrine for us? Would it be this deep reality that changes the shape and changes the structures of our affections, that we would live in light of it and be willing to give our life for the lives of others like you gave yours for us. So Lord, would you do a deep work in us for those who don't know you, um, who didn't know you just moments ago, but you've done something in their heart, would this be their, their day of new life? And we come to this table in grace because of you. And we love you. Amen.